Welcome back, everybody, to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahoski. Today is episode number five, entitled Parables Are Incarnational Stories. This is a special episode that takes an argument out of my book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle-Earth. Which, in which I explore this idea that parables are linguistic incarnations, like its teller, the incarnation himself, Jesus Christ, and that parables are analogous to Tolkien's fairy story, or at least very similar to them, that they have the same function as a higher art form, that they are perfect uh, vehicles, literary vehicles or forms for communicating um, the incarnation itself. And so in this episode, I explore that main concept And so I'm more concerned, as I am in my book, about presenting how parables and parables slash fairy stories affect us and the uh, function that they have. And Tolkien was more interested in this than in what we call fairy story or defining it for everybody, because it is very difficult to pin down, as uh, one Christian speaker has said, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. Um, to try to understand fully uh, and give a definition that's going to satisfy everybody uh, for parable or fairy story. So we're not going to attempt to do that. We're going to attempt to draw sort of the connections between parable and fairy story as the same form and themselves as a subset of allegory, which is itself a subset of mythos. So uh, there are some elements from episode three and my interview with Dr. Charlie W. Starr in episode four that feature their way into uh, today's episode. And I also talk about the evidence in Tolkien's letters that Tolkien did not dislike all types of allegory. In fact, he did call the Lord of the Rings an allegory in one of his letters um, and also uh, called the Lord of the Rings a fairy story in another letter, which means that fairy story is a subset of allegory and that it is opposite the kind he disliked, the allegory which he labeled the conscious and intentional allegory, and that his friend, Father Robert Murray, who to whom uh, Tolkien sent many letters about the Lord of the Rings and had him read portions of it, wrote an essay called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable, where Murray connected parable and fairy story. So I'm going to tie all this up, as I do in my book, and argue that we have myth, uh, allegory is a subset of myth, and the parable fa- fairy story is a literary form, as it could be said, to be a subset of allegory. And that opposite, on the opposite end of that spectrum, we have the type of allegory that Tolkien disliked, called the conscious and intentional allegory. And so on this spectrum of allegorical uh, literary forms, we have the conscious and intentional on one end, and we have the parable slash fairy story on the other. Allegory itself is a type of mythos, which I also explore. And I talk about in the episode today how we could have chosen to say, you know, we have a group of parables, as I say this in my book as well, and then say that allegory is a type of parable, as some biblical scholars like John Dominic Crossan and Klein Snodgrass have argued. The reason I've gone with a classification of allegories as a subset of mythos is going to be clear in today's episode because Tolkien spoke of multiple allegories. And so I go through the evidence in his letters about this, and I try to lay out in as clear terms as humanly possible how all of this works together. And then we conclude with one of the main theses of my book, which is that parables are in form what they wish to communicate in their content, that they are incarnational stories. They are linguistic incarnations in the word of one scholar, like their, and like their teller uh, itself, 
that is Jesus, who is the incarnation, they communicate through their form what they wish to say in content. That is that they are a special kind of myth, a unitive experience where thinking and experiencing subject and object or subjective and objective and concrete and abstract and mythos and logos are united in one literary form and that they are imaginative and rationally, imaginatively and rationally satisfying stories that appeal to the whole person. They are holistic stories. They are stories from Eden itself and bring us back to that way of thinking and uh, speaking about reality that we had before we fell. And this is the argument that I make towards the end of the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and check out the other resources we have on the description for the podcast, such as my website. And don't forget that Mythic Mission also has a YouTube channel in which the interviews that I do with scholars and Christian speakers are posted in video form there. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy the show. And today's episode is entitled Parables Are Incarnational Stories. So this is going to be one pulled out of my book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle-Earth, which was just published in September, mid-September of 2020, with Whip and Stock Publishers. And this book um, is sort of the culmination of many, many years of research and love and reflection on uh, scholarly works, not only by Tolkien scholars, but also by biblical scholars, uh, and is, of course, a work of love that I poured my heart and soul into. And uh, finally, I have been able to get it published after a long and arduous journey to do so, which you can read about in the preface of my book. So I'm very happy to have our first podcast that really touches specifically on a very important part of the argument in my book. And I'm happy to share that with you today. Of course, this is not going to be a complete deep dive. You'll need to read the book yourself to kind of unpack the fullness of the argument. But I do feel that it is going to address some of the concerns that I know that many Tolkien scholars, especially out there, have. And I'm going to address that head on first thing this morning. We're going to carefully walk through Tolkien's uh, correspondence and comments that he's made in other places like the forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings and perhaps uh, on fairy stories and his essay on Beowulf, which is a very well-known scholarly essay. And we're going to make the case that there is really nothing to fear when we know what we're talking about. And we know that there is a, a nuanced and complex history behind this term allegory. We have nothing to fear from allegory. What we have to fear is reductionism. We have to fear reading uh, into the Lord of the Rings the wrong kind of allegory or reading and taking away the wrong message. We also have to uh, fear uh, reducing the story to just being just about biblical stuff, that it's um, uh, that, that's a caricature of Christianity itself, that Christianity is, is about so much more than just what's in the Bible. It's the, the true myth. It's the totally and completely true story that completes all other stories. So there are elements of other non-Christian religions and myths that are in the Lord of the Rings and, and also implicitly in scripture that God recognizes that there is a mythic yearning that other human beings to tell stories because he put it in them and that they tell stories to reach out to God and that therefore there are fragments of Christ and truth, uh, though impartial and incomplete in other myths. And so Christianity 
uh, and therefore any Christian novel that properly understands Christianity, was, which I feel the Lord of the Rings does, uh, is going to not just be about, you know, the Davidic kingly line in the Bible and the culmination of Jesus the Messiah. It's not just going to be about Christian stuff. It's also going to remind us of many other meanings and, and other myths. And, and, and that is part of why and, and how it is so supremely Christian. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today, of course. But at the heart of that, I'm going to unpack what I mean in my book by uh, parables are incarnational stories, because I put forward the thesis that the Lord of the Rings is a parable, is a parabolic novel. And this has to do with how it reflects truth, how it communicates truth in a very unique way. I'm kind of drawing on wording in Tolkien's letters himself, where he said that he believed fairy story, which we're going to see is um, very similar to uh, I argue the par New Testament parable, that fairy story has its own unique mode um, opposite of allegory, the kind that he disliked, of reflecting truth. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to have to also talk about what parables uh, have to do with the incarnation, which is the central tru truth, um, really, uh, of Christian worldview, of the Christian myth, of the, uh, the idea that and, and the reality that God became man. And just again, a quick caveat, as we know here on Mythic Mission, Myth is a narrated uh, view or storied view of reality. So when I say Christian myth, I'm, I'm saying the Christian worldview. I just mean in narrative form, uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's what I always mean when I say that. And uh, Lewis, in his essay, Myth Became Fact, says, we mustn't be ashamed of the mythical radiance that rests upon our Christian theology. And we have to give the same imaginative embrace uh, to the Christian myth as we do to all the others. Now, that's a very important uh, those are two very important comments to understanding my book, uh, and they're cited in my book at various places, okay? And that's what I mean when I say the Christian myth, for those of you that are listening. Of course, I have much more to say on it, but that's not the subject of today's podcast. Today's podcast, again, is about parables as incarnational stories and addressing the concerns that we have with calling Tolkien's, parable, uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings and any stories related to it, like The Hobbit and the Silmarillion, uh, a parable or allegory, um, anything but a fairy story makes people uncomfortable. But I'm going to show that there was a very good friend of Tolkien who didn't fear anything by making this connection between fairy stories and parables. I'm also going to show that other Tolkien scholars, especially Joseph Pierce, who I believe is a Catholic Tolkien scholar, who um, also has already pointed this out, that the Lord of the Rings is in some sense an allegory, and Tolkien said so. It's just not the kind that he disliked. And I think these are very important signs that uh, many Tolkien scholars have missed the forest through the trees. And I want to talk about that first. I think one of the main reasons many Tolkien scholars have not uh, identified the kind of story that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is, is because of fear or ignorance. And, and I think that Michael Heiser, uh, when I did his um, interview about my book on his Naked Bible podcast, really put it bluntly and correctly. He said it in love. But what the problem is, a lot of these Tolkien scholars don't have um, a biblical background or haven't integrated it as a part of their area of study, or they have the, a caricature of the Christian worldview, and therefore what they look for in the Lord of the Rings is going to be misguided. And this is part of the argument I've made in my book. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar per se, I did not go to seminary, but as a, um, a person who has three degrees, a uh, master's degree in humanities, one in history, in which I focused on the classics, and uh, I should say classical history, which at the time was um, defined 
at UCF where I was as a Greek and Roman, and I also focused on Christian and Judaic thought. Uh, so the Judeo-Christian tradition. And in graduate school, I did the same thing and added to that uh, expertise, um, a little bit of background in the Italian Renaissance. So my areas of study have always been focused on the history uh, and I would say philosophy, but especially theology, the religion, study of religion in these cultures, especially Greece, Rome, and Israel, uh, wherever I've gone to school, this has been what I focused on. It's been uh, what my library has consisted of for, for 15 years now. And I have been steeped in many different perspectives from all over the Christian world uh, and, and the church. And the, I think part of the problem is many of these Tolkien scholars are just not as well read as uh, I, I have been in biblical studies and in what people are saying about the gospel and what people like N.T. Wright have been writing about for years about how we're to understand the central message, the incarnation. Uh, and he's also written a great deal about uh, parables. And then there are other scholars I found like Gisela Craiglinger and Sally McFaig and Klein Stodgrass and Amy Jill Levine and many others who have uh, while not all Christian and, and maybe not all of the same denomination, uh, have written about the incarnation and parables and the gospel and the proper understanding of it. Brant Petra, another Catholic scholar who I've been reading for years. Um, many of these, the, in fact, all of the authors I just mentioned have been part of my reading list for many years and are part of the bibliography of this book. And so those who have eyes to see will see that and realize that I uh, took the time to read widely and deeply and reflect prayerfully on what it is we should be looking for as far as Christian elements and what we should be trying to discover when it comes to Tolkien's worldview. Now, I know he was a Catholic, of course, but I believe that his vision was more um, ecumenical than many people give him credit for. Yes, there are specifically Catholic themes. Yes, this was supremely important to him and others have written about this. This was not my task. So what I want to point out is that I agree with Dr. Heiser that I, I believe that the reason why nobody's written a book like I have is because people have not uh, been reading widely. And these, uh, these scholars who have been uncovering some pretty extraordinary things that are really not new, including Heiser, um, but are things that we've forgotten. Uh, and we've, as Heiser said, and I agree with him, we've put tradition above uh, uh, the ancient Israelite perspective of the Bible. We've put our denominations first rather than a good hermeneutic. And I think this is something that a lot of Tolkien scholars are guilty of. They have brought with them um, loyalty more to their denomination and background than they have to uncovering a more complex truth. Now, of course, I am not without my own background, and there is no such thing as being able to not bring a denominational perspective. So in the book, I explain that um, when the book was published last year, I was right about ready to return to the Catholic Church. I had a very disappointing experience with uh, a deacon, and uh, we are still praying on whether or not this is our choice to come back to the church. I'm, I'm really disappointed with how many of the parishes I've interacted with here where we live in Florida have been just very standoffish uh, and skeptical. And I understand uh, in, in part why that is, but I uh, have also talked with a lot of Protestant friends and, and done a lot of reading and praying lately. Uh, Jerry Walls's book, uh, Roman uh, but not Catholic, I think, uh, or no, it's Catholic but not Roman, something to that extent. I forget the title of the book off the top of my head. Um, 
you know, it's going to bother me now. I'm going to look it up because it, it really has uh, helped me reflect and, and pray on what's going to be a very uh, important. Um, yeah, it's Roman, but not Catholic. There we go. Um, a very important decision for my family. Uh, Catholicism is still very close to my heart and uh, it, it informed my book. This is why I brought this up. But I've also, I can't lie that, uh, as I say in my book, I've been ironically teaching at a Presbyterian church or had been until recently with this crisis of faith about where we belong in a church, not a overall crisis of faith. Um, I've been teaching at a Presbyterian church since 2012 or 13, a local church, Protestant Presbyterian church. So I have a lot of uh, unique perspectives to bring to the table here. And of course, it does inform my bibliography. You'll see Catholics and Protestants uh, side by side and, and other um, perspectives as well. So with that all kind of said, um, let's move into um, the first main subject for today. So point number one, uh, I want to talk about these objections to calling Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings an allegory. Okay, that's first and foremost what we need to talk about. And then, of course, because people have, like they have caricatures of Christianity, there's a character of parables as well. And we think that it is exactly what we mean by allegory. And so calling the Lord of the Rings a parable may even be worse to some scholars. And so I want to address those two uh, uh, kind of concerns in that first point. And then we're going to move into talking about fairy story and connect fairy story and parable. And then we're going to finish by uh, in our third and final point talking about excuse me, uh, we're going to be talking about um, parables slash fairy stories as incarnational myths or stories. And that is um, going to be the final point for today. So we're going to look at some evidence, okay? Uh, I, I present an abundance of evidence in my book. Um, Tolkien was really, what was it in the words of Clyde Kilby? Um, he said, it was contra-insistent. Uh, you know, he was insistent that his book was not an allegory, but contradicted himself frequently. Now, is it that Tolkien contradicted himself? I don't think so. And so I, I agree that the appearance is of, of what Kilby said, contra-insistency, which is a made-up word, but I, I don't think that's the reality underneath it. And uh, it is important that we recognize, however, that Tolkien was contra-insistent about this subject and that he was all over the place. That appeared to be, but was he ignorant? Was he not aware of what an allegory was? Did he not know about parables? Now, I did not ever find uh, any connection to the word parable in his writings, but one of his good friends, Father Robert Murray, who is part of the Society of Jesus, a Jesuit, uh, and a friend since the 40s of the Tolkien family and a correspondent uh, that Tolkien wrote uh, and, and wrote um, uh, wrote too frequently in their collected letters in the Carpenter edition of letters of J.R.R. Tolkien um, that were addressed to uh, for Father Robert Murray. And Murray also read uh, portions of The Lord of the Rings and was a confidant in Tolkien. And in these letters, it was uh, really that he revealed a lot of the Christian undertones or uh, worldview underneath the story. And so he confided in Murray quite a bit. And it was Murray later in the Tolkien centenary in 1992 hundredth um, year um, celebration of his of his birth in 1892 that he delivered a Thanksgiving sermon which became an essay which is part of Tolkien a celebration edited by Joseph Pierce and this essay slash sermon that Murray delivered in 1992 is called Tolkien in the Art of the Parable 
So he noticed it. Now, who else would be in such a position other than C.S. Lewis uh, to, to make such an intimate comment about Tolkien's writings? So that stands as evidence that we need to investigate. And in, in many ways, I consider my book a kind of a um, uh, building on what Murray um, said, started to say in this very tiny essay. And I, I saw it as kind of my uh, foot in the door that needed to be explored in more detail. And I found from reading biblical scholarship about parables and the gospel and the incarnation and Tolkien scholarship side by side led me to a conclusion based on things Tolkien said himself and study of these literary forms that led me to the conclusion that yes, yes, the Lord of the Rings is an allegory and a parable could be said to be a type of allegory and that parables uh, as I'm defining them are analogous to what Tolkien wrote about the fairy story. And that at the end of the day, this isn't ultimately what matters, but I, what I did want to make it matter a little bit in the book is because I wanted to show people that we are not looking at the subject in great enough detail. We're not reading enough biblical scholarship to inform this. And um, I think people continue to hold on to these old things that Tolkien said without looking at some of the other things that he said about allegory. And I also think that there is a little bit of refusal to sort of budge on this because we're afraid of putting words in Tolkien's mouth, but I, I haven't done that. I've let Tolkien speak and I believe that's exactly what he's saying. And I believe that he never said parable himself because it would have been uh, too much of a revelation of what he was trying to do. And I think it's part of the art of the parable that you don't announce that. Okay, and this was for other people to figure out. In Tolkien's own words, he left the uh, hints to the highest matters uh, and allusions to the highest matters, he said in a letter to Murray, down to mere hints, only perceptible to a few who were looking carefully to find it. So what does that tell you right there? Now, it doesn't mean that we can just dive in and do whatever we want, and that's not what I've done, but it does mean that, well, Tolkien was contra-insistent because he said things that contradicted that comment, but uh, <laughs> it also says that we are invited to reflect and to see this, but he just isn't going to come out and say it himself. And I think that Tolkien scholars really need to move past this allegory issue. And, and I think I've found a way to do that. And I've, I've underscored how much more important it is, not what we ultimately call it. And I say this in my book, uh, but how it communicates and reflects truth in a way that Tolkien would have wanted. And, uh, and I think respective of our Lord, of Jesus, and um, how it affects us. That is, those two things are much more important than what we call it. Call it whatever you want, but so long as we get the other stuff right, that's what matters. Okay, so let's start first. Uh, I want to start first with this, this idea. Now, Lewis was deeply influenced by Tolkien about his views of myth, and so it's very important that we understand this because what Lewis later says about myth, I think, was very much informed, um, not all, but very much informed by what Tolkien had to say about myth. Now, Lewis reminds us uh, that he believes in, in several of his writings, especially the space trilogy, Paralandra, this comes forward, uh, where he talks about the incarnation as the beginning of the disappearance of the, the, the split between myth and truth uh, and um, reality. And, and what, he's, what he's saying is the incarnation is the beginning of the disappearance um, between this triple distinction between myth and truth and both and reality, but also the beginning of a disappearance of the subjective, objective, concrete, abstract, mythos, logos, 
figuratist literalist um, division in human language and thinking. And it's the beginning of the disappearance of those contrasted pairs and bringing us back to a pre-fall kind of state of thinking and speaking about reality, an incarnational way. And Lewis alluded to this as kind of a, a great tongue. And um, this, as I said, you can read about this in Dr. Starr's book, The Fawn's Bookshelf, and you can also read it in Paralandra and some of uh, the other writings of Lewis I have to find in my book, I have them cited. I, I can't remember which essay he, he mentions or what letter he mentions this idea of the great tongue, but he does, and it might be Paralandra. Anyway, the point is, uh, I know in Myth Became Fact, Lewis takes this idea and, and kind of writes about it um, as our tragic dilemma, okay? This, this uh, split of these pairs that were once united. Okay, he says that um, uh, in a well-told myth, we have the partial solution uh, to our tragic dilemma, which is either to know and not taste or to taste and to not know. And that he's making a distinction between knowing and tasting or knowing and experiencing which is part of this split, right? Uh, between the abstract and the concrete. And this is our tragic dilemma and myth is the partial solution. The language of myth is metaphor and metaphor helps us to kind of connect the sinews again and bring these things back together. And this is kind of our state, okay? Our fallen state um, that we are not mythical thinkers, that we are not thinking in a unified way. Parables are gonna help restore that. The incarnation is a parable. That's why the incarnation, Jesus, came speaking in parables. He was trying to knit us back together to make us whole again in our thinking and in our understanding about reality and our speaking about reality, okay? Reversing what happened as a result of the fall. So I'm kind of setting the problem here and how myth uh, is gonna be kind of the solution, okay? But um, I, I mentioned parables just a minute ago. And so I wanted to find some terms now. now Myth is sort of a very general term, and I um, define it as a story or an account of reality. This is the old Greek definition of it before Plato. It's a concrete, imaginative, and often, but not always, wordless means of communication. Of course, myth is communicated in words, but it's always um, best when it's communicated through images, okay? It is a not irrational, but non-rational way of communicating truth. It bypasses the intellect and appeals to our imagination uh, and therefore through our imagination to our intellect, our reason. It, it is a story, a unitive story, the unification of the imaginative and the rational, the abstract, the concrete, the subjective, the objective, the heaven and earth, if you will, um, uh, literalist and figuratist. It is an incarnational uh, form, I believe, the true understanding of myth. And of course, this is not the modern understanding of myth as an untrue story. Uh, I addressed this uh, issue in a previous podcast, so I'm not going to get into that. Now, that is um, what very general a story myth is, okay? But mythoi, uh, plural myths, right? There are various kinds of forms of myths. And I believe that um, it is the parable, which is a subset of uh, myth, which we know from the ancient Greek writings, like by the author Theon, I believe also Aesop, um, that, that it's said that um, parable is a subset of mythos, okay? Parable is a very special kind of myth that really is this unitive experience that, that brings together these cleaven uh, pairs, right? These things that have been cleaved apart into these contrasted pairs, and it brings them together in a unitive literary experience, 
Okay, and parabolane is a Greek word that means to throw from the side, indirect speech, indirect communication, to cast alongside, uh, parallel, to bring back together. The uh, antonym of this in Greek is uh, diabolane, which means to scatter, right? Which is one of the words for the devil, which I think is interesting. Uh, I learned this from Bishop Robert Barron, by the way, a Catholic bishop, obviously. Um, well, if it's not obvious, there you go, have it. Um, Bishop Barron is a wonderful thinker and writer, one of my favorite intellectuals in the church today, and a Catholic, yes. So um, this is what a parable is and what a parable does, okay? So I believe that parable is kind of the archetypal and, 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 and poster child of what a true myth is. However, of course, there are other literary forms, and I believe that it is very possible that... Um, there is a kind of um, other subset of mythos called a conscious and intentional allegory that is, um, of course, a story that is really just saying one thing but meaning another, okay? Now, it is a subset of mythos, yes, and all myths in a certain sense uh, say one thing and mean another. However, um, well-told myths like parables really um, are in form what they want to say in content. That, that is, they're more suggestive and more implicit in the way they communicate truth. I believe the conscious and intentional allegory is the, quite the opposite. Keywords conscious and intentional, okay? Now, um, we could say that allegory and parable are on opposite ends of the mythic spectrum. However, um, what would be even more possible, and this is based on research I've done in books um, such as Klein Snodgrass's Stories with Intent, um, he makes the case that it, it really is a, kind of impossible to say that allegory does something that parable doesn't or vice versa. So yes, there are subsets of mythos, but to put them on opposite sides of each other is really unnecessary. So instead, what we might say is this, and we can either choose to work with a classification of allegories as a subset of mythos or a classification of parables as a subset of mythos. And I think it really doesn't matter because both Snodgrass says, and I agree, are framed on the reality they seek to portray. Both sometimes occasionally have what we might say, allegorical, which is much more direct and clear, you know, this for that kind of language. Um, they're gonna inevitably have some of that because this is just how human thinking is in our fallen state. Um, and then they're also going to have metaphorical speech, which is more suggestive and less substitutionary, such as what allegorical language is. This means that, question mark, kind of suggestive, but not in your face and not necessarily, uh, and almost always never a this for that kind of experience, okay? Now, um, I've just run through a bunch of stuff very uh, quickly. So at first we said that, you know, there's two types of mythoi, there's allegory and parable. And then I made the case that really we shouldn't pit them against each other. This is kind of the typical way we've done it. Instead, if we kind of imagine or make a little uh, diagram in your notes right now, we have mythos, okay? This is this general uh, well-told myth is a unitive experience of the imaginative, the intellectual. We went through all that. Underneath that, we should say, that we could either speak of um, types of allegory or types of parable, okay? Because ultimately what's gonna happen is in this categorization we have, whichever one we choose, we can say that the odd man out is going to be a type of that category that we choose. Now, I believe because Tolkien wrote mostly about allegory and because as we'll see in a moment, 
evidence in his letters dictates that he spoke of more than one kind of allegory, uh, that I went with that because I didn't want to put words in Tolkien's mouth. If I had said, um, you know, he spoke of uh, various parables, there's no evidence for that. And what I discovered in works like uh, Snodgrass's book is that whether we choose one or the other, we're ultimately going to have, as I said, the odd man out in the category that we choose. And it's really going to ultimately say the same thing because in general, the term allegory and parable uh, as a kind of indirect communication is kind of the same thing, okay? What we're gonna make a distinction is the mode of language, allegorical mode versus metaphorical mode, which one dominates the overall composition is really what it comes down to. And this is what bothered Tolkien. We're not gonna get to that quite yet. We'll get there later. But what, um, what again, I wanna kind of make the point of saying here is, is that we can either choose classification of allegory or parables. It doesn't really matter based on the research I found um, it does matter. I think it matters because Tolkien spoke of multiple allegories. But what I mentioned Snodgrass again for is because he speaks of multiple parables. So he chooses the classification or category of parables. And he suggests, like John Dominic Crossan also does, that allegory is a type of parable. Now, we could have done that, but there's no evidence in Tolkien's letters that he ever explicitly mentioned parable. There is one letter where I believe he does allude to it. Okay. And if I don't get the exact letters, numbers to you today, you can always check my bibliographical notes in my book or um, just look it up yourself. But um, all of it's documented in my book. I just don't have them all written down. But I know for a fact um, that what I quote from Tolkien later is in his collected letters. And I do believe there's a later letter 180 something that uh, he mentions or alludes to parable, but he never explicitly says it. So I never went with that. So here's what we're going to go with. We're going to say instead of the the old fashioned kind of Tolkien scholar way is to say there's myths and then there's allegories on one end of the mythic spectrum and parables on the other. We're not going to do that. We're going to say, um, you know, of course, there's various kinds of myths. There's there's analogies and fables and and other stories. We could um, think of other literary forms, proverbs, for example. And then there's either allegories or parables, okay? And so let's just isolate underneath myth, there is um, a typology or category of allegory. Allegory is anything that speaks of something else. So technically every word we speak is an allegory. It's a subset of mythos, okay? Underneath allegory, we have different kinds of allegory. That is we have ultimately, it's also like saying we have different kinds of myth. Um, now these allegories, um, we're going to see uh, some are uh, a type of myth that are more conscious and intentional and more explicit in what they are trying to portray, and some are not. So we have myth, allegory, underneath allegory, we have uh, a spectrum, okay? And uh, again, ultimately what we call these stories, I don't think is important, so long as we're distinguishing how they function and affect the person is important. On one end, we have the conscious and intentional allegory. Now, both Lewis and Tolkien made a fuss about intentionality, and they always said in their writings that intentionality was the bane of the author's existence. If you were trying to say something about, you know, your beliefs, or you're trying to make a larger point that transcends the story, the, the, the worst way to do it is to make that very conscious and intentional. And that was a marker, a sure marker, that it was what they called, what, what Lewis just called allegory, but what Tolkien specifically referred to in letter 131, that I know, as the conscious and intentional allegory. 
Now, in other places, Tolkien doesn't uh, refer to it always. Every time he says allegory, he doesn't always have conscious and intentional in front of it. Now, I think this was intentional. I think that we have to be very careful in reading context that in some letters, he's using allegory in a, in a more general uh, classification sense, um, not a specific type, type of allegory. But when he wants to criticize one type over and against another, he's very specific. And he's only specific uh, in his letters that he dislikes and, and always has and always will, the conscious and intentional one. And I believe this is the one that he's referring to in the forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. But elsewhere, he calls The Lord of the Rings a parable. In one letter, again, the number escapes me, it might be 163 off the top of my head, but he says, um, I think it's a letter to Naomi Mitchison, he says, of course, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory of atomic power, but of power uh, in, as dominion, right, to express dominion over other people. Now, Joseph Pierce was the first to point this out to me in his book, Frodo's Journey, that Tolkien is saying, in one sense, the Lord of the Rings is an allegory, just not of atomic power. And um, what's important there is he is implicitly admitting the Lord of the Rings is an allegory. But this isn't what it's about, which means that it is about something, and therefore the other comments that he makes in his letters about it not being about anything, uh, he's being contra-insistent, right? He's, he's trying to say that this is a multivalent story. He doesn't want people to even come away that it's a Christian story only about biblical stuff. The Bible itself is about other stories as well. So Tolkien, I think, struggled to kind of say this and maybe got flummoxed and, and didn't feel like he needed to explain it. But I, I do believe he's he's hinting at that. Okay, so um, you know it's very clear it is an allegory, just not the conscious and intentional kind. So it seems underneath allegory now we have a spectrum. We have the kind he disliked, which was marked by dominion of the author, conscious and intentional um, allegory on one end, which we're going to break down further in a minute, and on the other end, well, okay. In another letter, he calls the Lord of the Rings not an allegory but um, a fairy story. And he uh, writes an essay on fairy stories. And he says in that letter that he wrote the Lord of the Rings to demonstrate what he wrote in his essay in the 1930s, I think 1939. He said that he wrote the Lord of the Rings to demonstrate the argument that he put forth in that essay on fairy stories. So that tells you a lot. So the Lord of the Rings is a fairy story. Okay, but it's also an allegory. So the... Um, the type of, of conclusion to draw here, and then there are other comments that he makes as well that makes this clear, is that it, on the spectrum of allegory, which is underneath mythos, there is um, a, a fairy story, okay? Now, he says so much about fairy stories in his essay on fairy stories. And as I write in my book, he, he makes the case that they are metaphysical stories that contain things real to the imagination and to the senses. That is sensory objects, physical objects, um, uh, factual objects like the sun, the moon, mountains. He says that there are also fays and dragons and dwarves and trolls and men while they are enchanted. He also says that fairy is indescribable, though not, not imperceptible. But he's clearly uh, describing that fairy, the world of the fairy story, is very metaphysical. It contains the transcendent and the mundane. It is a truly metaphysical, not just physical, and not just mythical story. It's a story on the borders, as Matthew Dickinson has said, uh, Dickerson, excuse me, um, and uh, his co-author, whose name escapes me, they wrote a book called From Homer to Harry Potter, which is quite good. And they're quite right that 
fairy is on the borders of the world. It is a dualistic story, a spiritual and physical, imaginative and rational story. And uh, it is an enchanting one. Okay, so these and other things he says in his essay about on fairy stories, this, this thing that it's irreducible, it's indescribable, but it's not imperceptible that you, you can still learn something from it. You can still figure out the story enough, but you can't quite get there all the way. That is that it's a mysterious type of story. These comments are, have all been made by biblical scholars about parables, that they are suggestive, that they are more implicit. This is something that Gisela Kreglinger has written in her book about George MacDonald, I believe, and his writings and the parables of Jesus in her book, Storied Revelations. And uh, I, I benefited so much from reading about this. She mentions Tolkien as well. Now we disagree on what to call the story, but her research on parable is very illuminating because this is the way that she talks about parable. And it's exactly the way that we just said Tolkien spoke about fairy story. And there are other authors such as N.T. Wright that the very form of the story is the content it wants to communicate. Well, Tolkien in the letter says that he wanted to tell a story that um, was exemplified in the ancient device of uh, embodying familiar elements in unfamiliar settings. Well, Sally McFaig in her Speaking in Parables book mentions that um, the incarnation and that the parables that are linguistic incarnations are the embodiment of the familiar and the unfamiliar, the familiar and the strange. They're unitive stories, true myths. Um, well, that's all starting to sound very familiar. Well, that's because uh, what Tolkien and others have written about fairy stories uh, and what um, biblical scholars have written about parables are very similar. And I believe that's important because that, that, that's saying that parables slash fairy story are archetypal myths because they're incarnational. There's a special unitive quality about them. They're well told in a way that we're going to talk about in a moment that communicates the message through the form, that they're suggestive and implicit. They're experiences that also are simultaneously stories for immersion and reflection. They're not one or the other. See, a conscious and intentional allegory has you uh, abstracting uh, everything out of the myth and removing it from the experience. So again, we're cleaving um, mythos and logos apart from each other. Again, the abstract and concrete, we're abstracting the philosophy and the reflection out of the experience when we do that in a conscious and intentional allegory. That's not what Tolkien's done. It's also much more explicit in that kind of story and it's much more transparent. And the Lord of the Rings is anything but transparent. And yet it is a thoroughly Christian story. And that means a multivalent story, one that also ties in other myths that are completed in the Christian myth. So all of this kind of coming together to make a very profound argument that I will not go into any further because you can read my book and find out more um, about the relationship between fairy stories and parables. And Tolkien did not need to be aware of that. Um, the truth of the matter is, of course, the truth of the matter. If you, th these things are true of parables all the time and it just takes a person to discover it. So whether Tolkien was aware of um, th this connection is irrelevant. If it is a fact that a person can discover through study and, um, and tradition, then me stumbling upon it now and, and having had Tolkien say nothing explicit about it 
doesn't make a world of difference at all um, because the truth is there. And uh, as I said, I think that what Father Murray discovered is that there is a connection and he started to make that connection and no one's ever finished it. So I believe that he recognized something that, that was there and, and that's why I've written this book. So as I take a sip of my coffee here, um, we have tried to build a case for the connection between fairy stories and parables. I've also made this sort of chart that you can have in your notes. You have mythos, you have allegory or parable underneath that. We chose allegory based on Tolkien's writing. We then open up a spectrum of allegories with conscious and intentional on one end and the parable slash fairy story on the other. We're arguing that parables are incarnational stories. We're arguing that that means fairy stories are incarnational stories as well. And that this is a connection we're going to talk about Father Murray made as well in a minute. Um, but these are opposite the conscious and intentional allegory. And this is the type of story Tolkien told. What we ultimately call it is unimportant. What it does and how it affects us is much more important. So that's a catch up so far. Now, what is it about, other than what I've already said about connecting parables and fairy stories and their qualities, what is it about the way language is used? in this well-told unitive story that I'm arguing, this, this parable slash fairy story that makes it different from the conscious and intentional allegory. Well, I think that is the alternation, uh, alternation between allegorical uh, and metaphorical language. And that is another way of saying um, clear, direct language, allegorical language, where this equals that, this is what Tolkien disliked, the clear presence of an author making a dominated uh, connection for the audience, right? Rather than letting them work it out uh, for themselves. Now, Murray said exactly that in his essay, Tolkien and the Art of the Parable. Here's what he said. He said that Tolkien has woven allegory, by which I think he meant allegorical elements into the story with a delicacy. Then he says something like, um, like a, a string of hooks um, that are, have been baited right, that we have to swallow them and, and figure them out for ourselves. And, and, and then he finishes by saying, uh, it, but that doesn't spoil the joy, the joy of working it out for oneself. And that that's crucial because in the forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien also says that his story has applicability. And this is a well-known comment, but what I think, other than what scholars have already said he's saying, I think he's saying there, the joy of the story is you working it out for yourself. Now compare that to what Matthew Dickerson has said in his book on the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, a Hobbit's Journey, I think it's called. He said that Tolkien never said that there weren't, wasn't you know, uh, certain allegorical correspondences to make, just that there were certain wrong ones, right? There were certain meanings to draw from the story that were incorrect, like atomic power, World War II, et cetera. Okay, so far so good. So allegorical language is a dominated kind of language that is clearly a kind of language that is more philosophical, it's more abstract. Um, it, 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 it's elements in the story, clear correspondences between the story and the reality it's seeking to portray that uh, are in pushing you to make this connection. And if you don't see it, you're not gonna get it. And it's, um, it, it, what's happening here is that we're abstracting the truth out of the experience, out of the image, and rather than experiencing the image and and what lewis says is in, in a great myth where we come close to experiencing as concrete what we could otherwise understand as an abstraction 
This is exactly what he says. In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction, right? Is that we're, we want to abstract this, um, but in a, in a well-told myth, we, we, we don't do that. And so allegorical language forces us to kind of do that. But in a great myth, we get the abstract concrete together in a single form. And of course, inevitably, what we're going to do with any story and why I wrote my book and why it's, it's hard to ultimately not do this is when we want to reflect on how powerful the story was ultimately, we end up having to do this. And Tolkien had a word for that too. He said that any attempt to explain the purport or uh, meaning of fairy story, he said, is going to use allegorical language. And he said that the more well-told a story is, the more susceptible it will be to uh, allegorical interpretations. And, and on the other hand, he said, the more intentional the allegory is, the more it will just be read as just a just a story. So this is a well-told story, meaning what was Tolkien saying there? He was saying it isn't dominated by the allegorical type of language. What was it dominated by? I think he was alluding to the domination of metaphor, which is the language of myth, as we mentioned earlier. It is a kind of language that is suggestive. It speaks of one thing that is suggestive of another. It furthers our knowledge about the subject matter. Matter. It doesn't just remind us like allegorical language, you know, okay, Aragorn is Jesus. Well, great. Well, he's not just that. Now in my book, I, I admit that even as, even as I explore how he images Jesus, I concede that, of course, there are other characters that do too, and this is part of the art of the parable, okay? But it's still there. It's just not all there because this is the art of the parable. Metaphor is part of the art of the parable, and it is suggestive. Speaking of one thing that is uh, in terms of another, in speaking of one thing that is suggestive uh, in terms that are suggestive of another. There we go. Speaking of one thing in terms that are suggestive of another. Suggestive and elusive. Now, Tolkien uses that very word, elus allusions to the highest matters. He keeps them down to mere hints. So I think in that statement about the more well-told a story is, the more susceptible it will be to allegorical interpretations, is he's saying that we're going to detect that it's about something, but that it's, that it's not, that it is, that it's not. It's mysterious, like reality itself. Um, and we uh, you know, are going to inevitably do this because we have to in our fallen state. But the best way to receive the Lord of the Rings, of course, is first and foremost as an aesthetic object. And I talk about that in my book. But for those of us who have spent many years reading it, and I don't think that this kind of book that I've written will spoil anything. I think, if anything, it will teach you to be more respectful of it as art. Um, and it is what it is. Even knowing this, the book isn't going to change. It's going to be a story. You're going to read this book of mine and then read The Lord of the Rings, and you're still probably not going to see the first round through how it's Christian. So I don't think it spoils anything at all. And I think, as I say in my book, that I have written this because I want to understand how this is affecting me. Everyone does. Um, and Tolkien understood this, and he encouraged it but in the end, what he wanted to kind of remind us is that because this is the true story, or at least that it, that it is told through the eyes of that author, the, the creator himself, it is a story that is endlessly readable, right? We can reread it and reread it and reread it, just like we can keep making forays into reality itself over and over again. And because it is ultimately unscrutable, but still not totally unknowable, we will keep coming back to it. 
because it is told through the eyes of the author himself. And Tolkien even admitted that, that God was the author of the Lord of the Rings. So I think we can carefully reflect on all these things while still respecting it as an aesthetic object. And that the back and forth contra-insistent words of Tolkien really, they egg us on in a gentle way to do this. And at the same time, they pull us back. And I, th I think contra-assistency might be another way of saying the conceal and reveal attitude of Jesus through telling of parables. Tolkien himself spoke parabolically. He, he kind of said, do this, but then don't do this, but do this. And I think that's a hint in and of itself. Um, and I, I think we want to, uh, in the words of Murray, um, enjoy, experience the joy of working it out for ourselves. But as you'll find, even after reading my book, whether you've read The Lord of the Rings first or not, is first of all, you're not going to see everything at once, all the Christian elements and all the allusions to the non-Christian myths and religions. But second of all, um, you're going to read it again and again. This is what I started my introduction saying, is that The Lord of the Rings feels real because it is, because it's told through the eyes of the author of reality. Um, and this is the thing, you're going to keep coming back to it because you're not going to you're not going to say, oh, yeah, well, okay, I read it, and, and I read the good news of the return of the king, and Jahoski said that, you know, um, I'd get it at the end of it. Well, I don't say that. You're not going to. It's, it's going to take you multiple forays into this, because it's going to take you all your life to figure out your life, and that's, that's what makes this such a remarkable story, and I think it points to and glorifies God by doing so, and I think Tolkien did a great job of standing out of the way and letting the Holy Spirit write this. And, and yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming close to saying it's inspired because I believe Tolkien believed that could happen, that an author could step out of the way so, so well and let the Holy Spirit take over and God who is sovereign working through that person to get his gospel out there. And, and no, I'm not putting it on the level of scripture. Absolutely not. Never would do that. But I am saying that Tolkien was called and inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this, this work of art. And that I think is perfectly reasonable to say as a Christian and uh, glory be to God for um, this man and, and, and what he was able to write. So dominated more by metaphorical language. So we come to now kind of making that big distinction um, that the correspondences, the allegorical correspondences in a well-told parable slash fairy story break down and the story, the language shifts into the metaphorical mode. But in a conscious and intentional allegory, the metaphorical language is less present. And we have more of the dominant allegorical mode, which is what Tolkien disliked because it was conscious, intentional, it was detectable, and it was an easy read. You can read it, you can say, okay, the Lord of the Rings is about the Bible. But no, even after all I've written about how it is, you're gonna read it yourself and you're gonna say, no, it isn't you're going to see Beowulf, you're going to see Norse mythology, you're going to see the Anglo-Saxon mythical influence, you're going to see Greco-Roman influence, you're going to see old Jewish uh, Hebraic influence through the divine council. Michael Heiser, I talk about how his, his theology crisscrosses with mine. And no, again, the same thing with what I said earlier about parable. I was asked in an interview, I think with Heiser even, you know, was Tolkien aware of this? Well, he didn't need to be. This is always how to been how to read the Bible, Heiser says. It's just that we've been so dominated by our denominations and loyalty to tradition that we've forgotten it. So even if Tolkien wasn't aware of Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, and the whole 
uh, unseen realm worldview, which I think he was, at least to a certain extent, or intuited and understood these Jewish elements, these henotheistic elements in, in the Old Testament, which I think is absolutely clear if you read the Silmarillion. I don't think they're angels or archangels. I think this is wrong. Um, they're not cherubim either. They're, they're other Elohim. They're lower created, imperfect divine beings with free will. Um, and no, I don't think Tolkien had to have had access to Heiser's research back in the mid 20th century. Of course, it's ludicrous. Um, how could he have? I think, however, that he had the Bible, of course, uh, duh. And this is discernible and deductible through, deducible, excuse me, through the Bible. Um, so I, I, I was asked this question. I, I don't think it's um, necessary to say he had to have been familiar with academic research on this which we say is quite new, but as I've pointed out several times before, it's not. We've just, we're blessed with this author, Heiser, who's been writing these books, but um, as, as he says, look, look, it's always been here. This is just appears new, but it's not. So anyway, um, you know, again, I think, I think that Tolkien was familiar with this. And I, I think in that same way, he was familiar with what we've spoken about here today, uh, parables as an ancient device, uh, reflecting truth, um, embodying uh, familiar things and unfamiliar embodiments, something to that extent, he says in letter uh, 153, actually, is what where he says it, okay? Letter 186 is the admission that the Lord of the Rings is one type of allegory and not another. In letter uh, 131, uh, he talks about conscious and intentional allegory and his passion for myth, not allegory, meaning, okay, well, allegory is a type of myth, yes, um, but what he's saying is, his, 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 his passion was for more of that unitive experience that's not dominated by the allegorical mode, but which is dominated by the alternation between the metaphorical and the allegorical mode, the unitive type of story, which is a myth, and which I feel the parable is a proper manifestation of that, uh, that understanding of myth, okay? Letter 181, where Lord of the Rings is a fairy story having its own mode of reflecting truth different from allegory. So there, Underneath mythos and allegory, we have our spectrum we talked about, where conscious and intentional allegory is on one end, and the parable slash fairy story is on the other. And there is so much more that I'd like to say. Uh, I say it in my book, um, you know, the importance of understanding Tolkien's comments of the Third Age not being a Christian world. Uh, I'll just say a brief word on this, that the reason why he said this was not to say that it was um, a not a Christian story. What he's trying to say is, Christianity has to be able to make sense in any setting. So if he had chosen, let's say, very clearly and obviously a first century Jewish Mediterranean world for his context of Middle Earth, it would have been very clear, probably, with everything else being true that we've said, that this is a Christian story. And he would have said that the Third Age is a Christian world. And that would have been what he said if, that would have, if that's what he had done. But that's not what he did. He says that, that the Third Age is not a Christian world because he's chosen a time, um, and, and actually, to, to kind of somewhat retract what I just said, I think we need to think of the first century in which Jesus lived as not a Christian world and not a fully Christian world either. It is an, an unchristian world. It's the, it's the incarnation time. It, it's, a, it's a time when, like Paul talks about in the fullness of time, right? It is the, the right time, kairos in Greek, sacred time where God came into the world. He, uh, this unfamiliar uh, being, God, comes into the world of the familiar, the juxtaposition of the two, 
being itself a parable, the incarnation being a parable, God coming in to the world, which is thoroughly um, both Jewish and non-Jewish, right? Uh, and so I think the setting for the third age is a world that is neither not too Christian, or what we mean by Christian, and clearly the first century was not, but also not unchristian, because there is no such thing as, you know, BC, really. Jesus is the pre-existent son of God. So picking a time in which is more ambiguous, I think, was important to him being able to say, see, Christianity can make sense in any time period because there really is no BC. As I know, Louis Giglio and other pastors have made this, this, this comment, which I love, very popular. And I think that's exactly what Tolkien meant by this. It, it's kind of like a parable time, right? It's uh, what I talk about in my book, and I make a case that we've misunderstood Tolkien's comments there about um, the Third Age not being a Christian world. And and uh, there are so many other things I would love to say. The things that Tolkien says about the incarnation have been misunderstood in light of not putting parables first in our theology and understanding of the incarnation. So um, maybe for another podcast, another time, but we want to finish today with a very important conclusion on parables as incarnational stories slash myths, same thing, right? And we've, we've built a case for everything else. So here's what I say in my book. We feel mythopathically, quoting Lewis here from Myth Became Fact, because God is mythopoeic. Jesus spoke in parables because the incarnation itself is a parable. The best possible way God could communicate this awesome truth was to find a way to say it in a way that is consonant with human nature. There I'm channeling uh, Tolkien in letter 89, where he says that man is redeemed in a manner that is consonant with his nature by a moving story. Now, he's not just talking about the gospel there, folks. He's talking about the incarnation. The incarnation, Jesus is a parable. He is uh, the myth made fact. He is reality in a person, truth in a person, goodness in a person, beauty in a person. He is the story embodied in a person and the culmination of all stories. And we are, we are redeemed through the story in human form. Jesus himself. And, and, and that's why the incarnation came speaking in stories, because narratives, stories, myths, parables have a part in bringing us to coming to belief in this, this being, this incarnation, who is the very person of God. And um, that this, this God has come into the world to save us. Okay. And so this is a mystery, but what we're getting is the unif unification, the, the unified experience, the myth-made fact, a true myth, one that is true and, and that appeals to the imagination and the intellect, one that unites the subjective and objective split, the concrete and abstract split. And that's why he told stories that does that, because the stories themselves are the content he is trying to communicate. Hey, I'm here. God is here. That's what's going on here. And I say, uh, this in my book on page 59, ebook edition, by containing the quote unquote dialectic of romanticism and rationalism within them. I'm channeling um, uh, C.S. Lewis here um, and also quoting from a book um, by, um, oh gosh, what's his name? John Piper, uh, who wrote a book about uh, the romantic rationalist about C.S. Lewis, and it's cited here. This dialectic of romanticism and rationalism brought together in a parables in a parable that appeal to our imaginations and intellect, 
that's what I mean by that unitive experience. Parables are linguistic incarnations. They are in their literary form, what the teller is trying to say, what the stories that the teller, Jesus is trying to say, the form is the content. And this is a very important thing. We swallow them whole and we, we take them as a concrete experience that have these abstract truths within them. And if we receive it as such, we're receiving a concrete experience and interaction with the son of God himself. And this is why Jesus is present in, the, in Middle Earth. And, and I see through the image, uh, the strong biblical image, but also extra biblical image of the return of the king in my book, that this is what is meant by God has become flesh, is that this was a way we could understand the incarnation as God becoming a king. And that this image of the exiled and returning king and God becoming king in, in this human king form and ruling on earth as in heaven is what says in that image, that image says incarnation and that the return of the king is evidence that God is present among his creation and is making all things new. And that we see that in the Lord of the Rings and the interaction between Iluvatar and the Valar uh, named Manwe and Aragorn and the connection that one of my future guests, Bradley J. Berger, who's going to come on and hopefully talk about this, says the incarnation is present in Middle Earth, but it's, it's stated in a parabolic way, right, through the image uh, of the return of the king and in a elusive, suggestive manner in the same way that Jesus came speaking in a suggestive and elusive manner. So if we can wrap our heads around this complex argument, and it's hard to in our fallen state, in our, in our you know, cleaving state where our mind is kind of cloven in two, and the, this, this sacred, secular, subjective, objective, abstract, concrete, romantic, and rational split is, is holding true over our, our, our fallen minds. It is hard to recognize this, but this is kind of the up-close analysis of what's going on and why parables are a unitive experience. They're incarnational experiences that are communicating directly to our imaginations that God is here in the image of the return of the king, that God is present, he's reigning, and we're experiencing an interaction with him, and it says that God is with us, Emmanuel. And I say in my book on page 23, uh, if everything in reality, this gets into typology, which I've talked about in a previous episode, if everything in reality in some way points to Jesus, the incarnation, then the best possible way to communicate that would be through a type of communication that is in form what it wants to say in content. If I want to say the incarnation, I don't want to make it clear that, oh, hi, everybody, I'm God. And we don't want to see in Middle Earth that there's a figure that goes around zapping people and doing miracles and, and clearly being this divine being um, from the Silmarillion, let's say, in the language of Tolkien's myth. You know, a Valar who is, uh, you know, of unending strength and power like Tolkis or, uh, you know, clearly a figure like that would have said, oh, okay, well, Tolkien wrote the incarnation and quite literally, but this would have been a violation of how the gospel authors and more importantly, how Jesus presented himself, who the incarnation himself didn't talk this way. And so that's not what Tolkien's done. 
he's chosen a type of communication, the parables told by the incarnation himself, an incarnational story form that gets it across in a very unitive, truly mythical um, and well, parabolic way, an incarnational way. And it is a, a form of communication that, that appeals directly to our imagination. I believe it's through primarily this type of the exiled and returning king, um, which I talk about in my book um, and, and many other connections to that theme. And I believe all of this is best perceived retrospectively as it is in scripture from the Emmaus Road perspective, if you will, of Luke 24. So it is with Tolkien's books. We need to look back from the Lord of the Rings ending all the way to the debate of Finrod and Andreth and all the way to the first age of Middle Earth and before to see how all this connects, just as we do with scripture. And I believe that is even more proof that the type of story, which I'm arguing parable slash fairy story, the Lord of the Rings is, is incarnational. And that that is communicating the incarnation. And it is a way that is unitive, that we are not accustomed to thinking that way because reality isn't that way. And so it's foreign to our way of thinking. However, the incarnation, as Lewis said in his space trilogy, is the beginning, was the beginning of the disappearance of this old fallen way of thinking. The new creation has come, not fully, but it has come. And we are able to think this way again, at least in part. So I will finish with quoting St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Uh, now I see in part, then I shall see fully, uh, even as I am uh, known fully, seen fully. I better read the verse to make sure I get it right. It's beautiful. So 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And I'm going to read from the NIV translation here. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And this is uh, a great way to end today. Parables are incarnational stories like their teller. They are familiar embodiments, uh, familiar elements in unfamiliar embodiments. This is in line with what Tolkien said. It also fits into, um, yes, it just so happens into a typology of allegories that Tolkien seems to suggest in his letters. We have nothing to fear from allegory. We need to be more discerning about the difference between allegorical versus metaphorical language, and that it is the former allegorical language that Tolkien really disliked that dominates the composition, not allegory itself. We learned that Tolkien himself called the Lord of the Rings an allegory. We've seen the interconnection between these terms, myth, allegory, parable and fairy story. We've looked at evidence throughout Tolkien's letters. We've looked at my book. We've concluded that um, parables are incarnational stories. They help us communicate the incarnation in their very form, right? What they are wishing to say in their content, that God has come, the return of the king um, has occurred. And this is the good news. Uh, and it is the good news of the return of the king. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know it was a bit of a deep dive into some complex subjects, but I want to just say one more thing again. And I think this, I kept slipping this in there, but I don't want to, I want to make sure that it's important that you understand. I, I believe this is all hard for us to understand. And we, we struggle as you, you see that Tolkien did perhaps a little bit and that I am struggling to put this into words because it's attempting to describe the indescribable. It's attempting to say something that we're not, 
we don't quite fully yet understand. It is a mystery. And so I think it's important that we respect the incompleteness of this, but I, I, I believe that we can intuit what it is that I'm trying to argue here, what I believe Tolkien was arguing. And I believe this addresses the objections of allegory, the concerns that Tolkien scholars have had. It treats the Lord of the Rings as an aesthetic object still. There's much more to talk about. Perhaps in another episode, I'd like to discuss the relationship of this parabolic novel of the Lord of the Rings to the other works and to look about that uh, perspective I mentioned, the Luke 24 Emmaus Road perspective and what looking back does in Middle Earth, uh, as some Tolkien scholars have already pointed this out, is parallel to the act of looking back in the Bible and what that's all about and how, um, what would we say of the Hobbit and, um, and uh, the Silmarillion, are they parables too? We would have to take a little bit more of a closer look at that. In my book, I, I kind of say that these are the uh, the back, the larger backstories that frame the gospel. And so if the Lord of the Rings is kind of like the gospel of which parables are kind of miniaturized gospels, right? Uh, if the Lord of the Rings is like a gospel, then the Hobbit and the Silmarillion are similar to, not the same, um, function of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in, in the, the larger backstory in which this new story, the good news, is announced into so we can talk about that in a future episode. May God bless you all. Thank you for listening. And uh, don't forget to subscribe. And uh, please reach out. If you have any comments, reach out via the website. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any requests for any subjects you'd like me to talk about on the podcast, please let me know. Have a wonderful day. See you next time.